Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, we're returning this morning to a message that we began last week. Takes us back again to this passage, verses 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 8. We've got a lot to cover this morning, and so I don't have a lengthy introduction for you. I'm just going to have to ask you to to, um, get involved quick. Sit up straight, take a deep breath, put those thinking caps on. Matthew's gospel was written in the target audience originally of believing Jews, Jewish believers. And it was written in order to help them to have an apologetic, an understanding of their Christian faith and to enable them to uh, win others to the Lord and disciple them, make disciples of them. And so Matthew records his, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, his story of Jesus' public ministry. And one of the questions that would arise in the mind of a first century Jew is this. If this Jesus, whom you are speaking to me about, is really the king of Israel, where is the evidence? What can, you, what can you point to? What can you show me that would help me to see this reality? The Old Testament speaks a lot about Israel's coming king. That one born in the line of David. And what his future kingdom would be like. The prophets speak about a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. They speak about a time when Satan will be bound. And sin overturned. And the disease and and sickness and devastation that are a consequence of living in a world broken by sin will also be overturned. So in order to bring forward some evidence of of Jesus as the Messiah, this great messianic king, this this one who proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, Matthew records for us some illustrations of Jesus' kingdom ministry. In fact, you can really think about Jesus' public ministry into in two parts. The early portion of it was him traveling about, primarily in the Gospels, Galilee for about 18 months, and during that time performing some incredible and amazing signs, miracles. And then the nation, unpersuaded, and unwilling to receive a king under the terms that Jesus presents himself, and you can look primarily at the Sermon on the Mount to sort of understand those terms, rejects him and turns away from him, and and he then turns to that small group of disciples to work with them and to prepare them for his ultimate crucifixion and resurrection and the birth of what we know as the church. In a rough way, that's sort of the outline of Matthew's gospel. 
We have been saying for a long time that, the, that if you wanted to put the gospel into a, into a short phrase, it would be, Behold, your king is coming to you. That would be a nice title to lay over the top of Matthew's gospel. And so in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel, he is, he is giving some specific evidences of Jesus' messianic authority, the power of the king. And he does it by, by arranging these miracles. There are nine of them that he recounts in these two chapters. And he arranges them into three sets of three. We told you this last time. After each uh, triplet of miracles, there is, a, there is a teaching section relating to discipleship. And then a, another triplet of miracles and another teaching on discipleship and so forth. And that carries you through chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 and flowing through 17, is the first triplet of miracles. Three demonstrations of Jesus' authority which prove him to be the messianic king. Now last week we looked at just that first demonstration, Jesus' authority over defilement in verses 2 through 4. Let me just read it for you again, help you to get into the context. A leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We looked last time at at this in great detail. don't want to do it again for you. We broke it down into just basically three parts. We said that first it was the leper's courageous request in verse 2. Secondly, the Jesus' compassionate response, verse 3. And fourth, or third, Jesus' strange command in verse 4. That was the outline of that section. If you missed that sermon, I, I just would say this as an aside. Go to the website and watch it. Go to the website and watch it. It was good. Okay, I'm just telling you, it was good. Because the material was good. It was one of those easy sermons to preach. So, if you missed it, go back and catch it. But what I want to do now is I want to plow forward here, and I want to take it through verse 17, beginning in verse 5, and I want to look at the second and third demonstrations of the power of the king, Jesus' authority. So that's what we're looking at, beginning in verse 5 this morning. Second demonstration, Jesus' authority over distance. The first was Jesus' authority over defilement. This is Jesus' authority over distance. And as we look here at the second and third demonstration, again, just to give you a few thoughts to kind of you know, hang your, your hat on here as an outline, I've broken it down into three very simple words. They are the power, or excuse me, the problem, the power, and the principle. So we'll look at these two miracles under that rubric. The problem, the power, and the principle. So let's begin with the problem here in verse 5. The problem in verse 5. And this is to demonstrate Jesus' authority over distance. Okay? Let's take a look at the problem. 
Verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Centurions, they appear frequently in the Gospels, and a centurion was a professional soldier. They were the backbone of the Roman army. It would probably, we would say that the the most modern uh, equivalent of a centurion would be a sergeant in the various uh, United States military branches. The centurion had uh, authority over what was called a century, and that would be a group of 100 soldiers. So a centurion had Responsibility over 100 soldiers a a century. Sixty centuries made up a legion. Okay, so if you're kind of figuring out how their force structure broke down. Sixty centuries makes up a legion, 6,000 men in a legion. Now, the ordinary duties of a centurion were, were to drill his men, to inspect them on a regular basis in terms of their weaponry and, and their food and their clothing and, and to also command them while they were both at camp and out on the battlefield. That's why I said I think a sergeant probably relates well. Centurions could also be separated from their century and they could be used for special responsibilities, special duties. And um, you would see, for example, in the crucifixion of Christ that that would fall to a centurion, but it wouldn't require a hundred men in order to crucify a criminal. Now, we're introduced to this centurion here in verse 5, in Capernaum. Capernaum. Capernaum is a fishing village located on the, on the uh, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this centurion was probably not a Roman The historians tell us there were no Roman legions in that portion of Galilee at that time, although he was clearly a Gentile, they think probably a Syrian, a Syrian by birth. Now, this fighting man, Matthew tells us, has a a servant that he is very fond of, and this servant is sick. Verse 6, he's lying paralyzed at home Fearfully tormented. The English Standard Version translates the Greek there as suffering terribly. That's probably a good good way to think about it. This servant is in some serious trouble. There's some kind of paralysis, some sort of illness with corresponding paralysis that has overtaken him. And in fact, in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 7 and verse 2, it says that he's about to die. So this, this... terrible illness that has overtaken him, resulting in paralysis, has brought him to the point of death. And the centurion is very concerned for him. Very concerned. So that's the problem. Next is the power. The power, Jesus' power, and it's demonstrated in that Jesus heals with a word. He heals them with a word. Now I want you to Begin to try to wrap your mind around that. Jesus says to him, verse 7, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I also am a man under authority with soldiers unto me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. This is a fascinating sort of response, isn't it? Jesus, come heal my servant. And as Jesus begins to to approach the man's house, it's, no, don't come. Come, but, but don't come. Don't come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say a word. Just speak, and he'll be healed. Now you think to yourself for a minute. Say a word, and he will be healed. That is an incredible kind of, of, of approach to a healer. What would lead a man to, to be able to, to think like that, to speak like that? The answer to that lies really in verse 9, the first word in the verse, for. You see that word? That supplies a reason. Why does he stop Jesus from coming? The answer is he he senses his unworthiness for someone with with this kind of authority to come under his roof. And by the way, you you don't really need to come under my roof, Jesus, to do what I'm asking you to do for. And then he he launches in verse 9 into this, this discussion about the mechanics of the Roman army. Jesus, I'm I'm a man under authority. Now, in the Roman army, all all legionnaires ultimately understood that their their authority finally derived from Caesar himself. So he is is under the authority of Caesar. He is a soldier. I understand authority. Jesus, I am under authority, and I have authority over other people. And when I exercise that authority, things happen. You see, this this man has a basic insight into the principle of authority. And the principle is this. If you have authority, you don't have to be someplace in order for something to happen. If you have no authority at all, you've got to go do it yourself. If you have authority, you only need to speak, and it happens. And this man understands that basic principle, that that one in authority who gives an instruction, that instruction will be carried out even long distance, even long distance. He believes that Jesus has that authority, verse 8. The centurion addresses him as Lord. This may sound a little odd to you, but this man is acting very logically, actually. He's acting in a very logical way. If you are Lord... We said last time, the use of the word here, we need to understand it not in a, an applied address of sir, but we need to understand it with its messianic implications. 
since you are the great messianic king, Lord, you don't need to be there in order for everything to happen. The king doesn't need to be in every portion of his realm in order to exert his influence and his authority. He merely needs to speak. It's logical. So speak. Say a word. And my servant will be healed. Verse 13. Jesus said to the centurion, Go. It shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Go. I've granted to you what you have asked. Your servant is healed. And Matthew tells us that very moment, the servant is healed. Instantaneously. Completely. At that very moment. (laughs) Beloved, that's power. We have some physicians in our congregation. You imagine how nice that would be? I could just call the doctor and over the phone. Take care of it, right? Certainly cut down the lines in the waiting room. This is power. This is authority. And amazingly, this centurion at a, at a backwater piece of the Roman Empire. I mean, let's be serious here. We're talking Galilee of the Gentiles. This is nowheresville. Figures it out. There's a principle here. There's a principle to, to be seen here. And, and the principle is, I'm calling it faith over heredity. Faith over heredity. And Let's watch how it develops, verses 10 and following. Now, when Jesus heard this, this is is the centurion statement about, listen, I understand how authority works. Just speak. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who were following, and Luke tells us the multitudes are following him, so he, he must have turned to the crowd And he said, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was amazed. Now, God is not amazed by anything. By definition, God cannot be amazed by anything. In order to be amazed, one must be limited in their knowledge or understanding. And God is not limited at all. So in his divinity, Jesus is not amazed. And yet, Matthew tells us he's amazed. So what's going on? Well, we're thrust into the mystery of the incarnation, right? 
This takes us deep into the mystery of the God-man. When Jesus came into space and time, when he took to himself human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, he became fully human. Subject to all the limitations of humanity, just like you and I, yet without sin. He, he limited the, the independent use of his divinity, and like a man, he walked by the Spirit of God. He relied on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who indwelled him, to, to lead him, to guide him, to empower him for his great messianic task. As the God-man, he marvels. He marvels. He says, listen, I have been been going throughout Galilee. I have been performing all kinds of miracles. I I have been speaking the very oracles of God. And yet, I'm not seeing much that's encouraging me. There's a, there's a superficial response. People will follow me because, hey, it's a good show. And I heal their sick. But where's the faith? And there's this Gentile. This, this centurion in the Roman army. He gets it. He gets it. He recognizes who I am and he acts upon it in faith. In the process of doing this, he he puts the nation of Israel to shame. He says, many will come, verse 11, from east and west. And they'll recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's a reference there to the the notion of the Old Testament. It appears in a number of places. Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6, is a good one to go to. That portrays Messiah's kingdom as as a great banquet. A great feast. And Jesus says here in a really shocking statement that there are going to be many, many at that feast who come from east and west. And the idea is that they come from all parts of the globe. Luke adds north and south. Now you need to understand something about Isaiah 25 and it speaks of the, the great messianic banquet. It's speaking about the kingdom. Clearly, Gentiles were expected, according to Isaiah, to to be part of Messiah's kingdom and and to be at the banquet. It's clear when you read Isaiah 25. But by the time of the New Testament, things have become distorted and twisted. And and the idea now was, yeah, there'll be some Gentiles there, but but it's going to be kind of like they stand along the walls and watch rather than participate. They're not going to recline at the table. They're going to to watch Israel. 
as she eats. Jesus confronts this, this arrogant, this, this prideful point by, by using the centurion's faith as an example. And he says, listen, it is this kind of faith that grants one access to the banquet. It doesn't matter what your heredity is. You come in by faith. Only those who have the faith like unto this centurion sit at the feast. But the sons of the kingdom, verse 12, are cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, speaking there of a place of torment and judgment, later revealed to us in the book of Revelation as a lake of fire. This is an incredibly shocking statement. You've got to remember, right? He's, he's walking along and there's a whole multitude that are following him. And they're following him because he's been doing all kinds of amazing miracles. And he turns and he looks to them and he says, Listen, this man and those like unto him will be there at the kingdom, but sons of the kingdom, you'll be on the outside. And it won't be just that you're on the outside looking in. You will be in the place of torment. The place of torment. Now what is this sons of the kingdom? What does that mean? It's a, it's a, it's a Hebraic expression. And, and it means essentially those who are identified with the kingdom. Sons of the kingdom. Those who are identified with the kingdom. Who are those that are identified with the kingdom? It's Israel. It's her kingdom. You're going to miss your own kingdom. Because you think that the the entrance comes by birthright. And I tell you, the only way in is by faith. My friends, that is the gospel, isn't it? The only way in is by faith. Third demonstration. Jesus' authority over disease. When Jesus came into Peter's home, verse 14, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. Jesus is living, as I said earlier, in the fishing village of Capernaum. Also living in that village is, is Peter and his brother John, and they have a fishing business. Evidently, Peter's wife comes from this village as well because Peter's mother-in-law lives there. So there's a problem here. It's a simple problem. His mother-in-law is sick. His mother-in-law is sick. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his, that's Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick in bed with a fever. She is bedridden, literally thrown down. She is thrown down onto the bed with, Luke again tells us, a high fever, Luke 4.38. We love Luke. He's a doctor and he enjoys the additional details. 
She is thrown down on the bed with a high fever. Now, we're not told what's the source of her fever. We don't know. People speculate all over the place, but I don't think it's all that helpful. We do know this, that high fevers indicate that something is seriously wrong, right? High fevers indicate something is seriously wrong. This woman is very sick. See, we're, you, you and I, we're... Well, I won't speak about you. I'll just speak about me. I'm a wimp. Okay? If you want to join me in that, you can join me in that. Not tough. So fevers and headaches, they, they sort of diminish me. You know, I can't. I have a headache. But that wasn't true in, in ancient days. They were a lot stronger, a lot hardier, a lot tougher than we are. Do you know John Calvin, just an aside, do you know John Calvin suffered from migraine headaches? Migraine headaches. Yet the guy preached seven days a week, wrote extensively. He had many other health problems too, and he died at 55. I'm 55, by the way. And nowhere near as productive as Calvin. John MacArthur says something interesting here. I've got it for you, I think, on a quote. The demands of everyday living did not allow most people in that day the luxury of going to bed whenever they felt bad. Physical pain and discomfort were a regular part of life, and unless they were severe, did not normally interfere with a person's responsibilities. That's just a good reminder. This is a miracle. This is not the miracle of Advil. This is, this is a miracle. Right? This woman is thrown down, diminished in her health in such a way that she has been thrown down onto the bed with a raging fever. There's something really wrong. You see the power of Jesus here in verse 15. He touched her hand. The fever left her. She got up and waited on him. Now, in Jewish society, the first century, a man would never touch a woman's hand. It just wasn't done. One commentator says that that even to count money from his hand to hers, he would not touch her hand. It was a taboo against such things. And here Jesus, he, he breaks that social taboo with a, with a compassionate display of healing power and he reaches out and he touches her, touches her hand. I think the idea is he, he, he takes her by the hand. He raises her up. Now this is, this is really sort of understated, isn't it? Kind of easy to pass over this whole thing. What happens here is, is really Amazing. Verse 15, the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. Instantaneously, the fever is gone, and with it we should understand the source of the fever. Now, I don't know if you've ever or can remember you know, having a fever and, and being sick abed for a number of days. When, when the fever finally breaks, the last thing in the world you feel like doing is jumping up, right? I mean, there's a, there's a period of convalescence that goes. 
It, it absolutely saps your energy, your strength. You feel terrible. She got up and waited on him. Luke tells us waited on them. The disciples are in the house. Luke adds the word immediately, by the way, in his account also. She immediately got up and began waiting on them. You see, when when Jesus healed her, he, he not only banished the disease which eliminated the fever, but he infused her body with strength and vitality. That's the picture. That's why I said it's, it's sort of understated, and, and maybe you just kind of read, read over it, but, but this is incredible. This is incredible. It's like she'd never been sick. Immediately, she got up and she, she waited on them. Mark tells us that it occurred on a Sabbath. It's likely that uh, the, the waiting on them here was uh, the noonday meal. So she prepared the noonday meal, and that doesn't mean she goes to the refrigerator and gets a, you know, a few swans and dinners and drops them in the microwave, right? I mean, there's a, a lot of work involved here. It's incredible. It's like she's never been sick. Jesus heals her instantaneously. He heals her in a restorative kind of way. This is illustrative, by the way, of of Jesus' healing ministry. Jesus heals instantly. He heals completely. He heals restoratively. And he heals with a word or a touch. Boom. That's how it's done. It's a breaking in of the kingdom. And in fact, that's the principle that Matthew is going to draw from this event. Healing and forgiveness are tied together. Third point. Healing and forgiveness are tied together. When evening came, They brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. When evening came, when the Sabbath ended at sundown, the people started to bring to him all who were sick. And he healed them. He healed them instantaneously. He healed them completely. He he healed them restoratively. Verse 17. Matthew says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and, and carried away our diseases. That comes from Isaiah 53, verse 4. I think it's, it's proper to understand that Matthew's quoting here of Isaiah 53 and verse 4 implies the entire context of Isaiah 53. 
This is the point of contact. But he is thinking about the entirety of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. And it is in the 53rd chapter of the prophecies of Isaiah that we encounter the suffering servant, right? Of Isaiah 53. That one who received in himself the punishment due the iniquity of his people. The prophet goes on to lay that all out. He suffered in the place of his people. By his atoning sacrifice, their sin is forgiven. His suffering stands in for their suffering. And by his suffering, sin is overcome. What caused Matthew to, to think about Isaiah 53.4 in the context here? I think it kind, of goes this, it kind of goes like this. Sin is the ultimate source of suffering. Would you agree with that? We live in a very, very broken world. And we are very, very broken people. And we, we feel the effect of sin... In every aspect of our being, it it corrupts the way we think, it corrupts the way we feel, it corrupts uh, our bodies, it corrupts our speech, every aspect. Nothing escapes. It's evil. So we can say in a a very real sense that, that sickness and disease and suffering which are the the common lot of humanity are a direct result of sin. Now, the Bible is very clear to say that we can't make one-to-one, you know, correspondences. We can't say your sickness is because of this sin that you've done. The Bible doesn't permit such things. But ultimately, sin leads to suffering. Disease is the result of sin. Sickness comes from sin. Why is Peter's mother-in-law thrown down on a bed with a severe fever? The the ultimate answer to the question is because we live in a sin-saturated world. And sickness and disease will never be totally and finally overcome until sin is totally and finally overcome. And that will not happen until the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. Now I want you to see something here at the end of verse 16. And he healed all who were ill. Do you see that little word, all? In the Greek, that word means all. Again, it's, it's kind of understated. But if you pause and you begin to think about it, it is powerful. Think with me like this. If you were sick, I mean seriously sick, or or you had a loved one who was seriously sick, and you heard that there there was a person who was healing people with a word or a touch, and he was entirely and totally and instantly and completely and restoratively healing them, how far would you drive? To take your loved one. Well, you know the answer, right? As far as it took. As far as it had to go. 
He healed all who were ill, verse 16. This is the idea. People were flooding to him from all over Galilee. He wasn't just in one place. He, certainly Capernaum was a base of operations, but he made you know, trips in and out of that area. And he was constantly healing during this part of his public ministry. And there are commentators that say, and I think they're exactly right on this, that, that during this period of time, Jesus effectively banished disease and illness from Galilee. I mean, it's only logical. He didn't have to go to all of them. They were coming to him, and he's healing them. The end of verse 16, he's healing all of them. Any who are demon-possessed, cast out. Why? Because in order for Messiah's kingdom to come, Satan's kingdom must be overthrown. So he casts out the demons. He heals the sick. And in this, Matthew sees Isaiah 53. He sees Isaiah 53. He sees here a glimpse of Messiah's kingdom. The blessedness of Messiah's kingdom. The great joy of the millennium to come. Peace, prosperity, long life, illness put to rest, blindness reversed, deafness reversed, leprosy reversed. He says you're getting a glimpse. You're getting a glimpse of what is to come. And yet, how did they respond? Turn over a couple of chapters. Chapter 11. Beginning in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Sons of the kingdom, cast into the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Beloved, we have three amazing demonstrations power of Jesus. Power over defilement, power over distance, power over disease. The evidence is incontrovertible. He is the Messiah. Amen? He is the Messiah. 
And as the, the Messiah, as the great messianic king, he establishes the, the entrance requirements into his kingdom. And, and what he says here is so shocking. He says, you don't get in except you express faith like this centurion. Beloved, what that means is your church attendance does not provide the entrance requirement to the great messianic banquet in the kingdom. Your baptism is not the key to open the door into the kingdom of God. Your Bible reading does not grant you a place at the banquet table. Your moral life, your good works, will not grant you entrance. Young people, your parents' faith will not grant you access. Nothing. None of these things or anything else that you might cling to will open the door. Listen, if the Jews can't get in and their pedigree far exceeds yours, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, If they can't get in without faith in Christ and Christ alone, then you who are a Gentile, you have no hope outside of Christ. He is your only hope. If you are relying on anything or anyone, listen to me. There is a fearful future for you. It is a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth, outer darkness. I've talked to people about such things and they say, well, you know, I'm okay. I'm going to hell and I'll be there with my friends. Oh, no. Oh, no. Outer darkness. Reminds me, many, many years ago, I was an auditor. And as part of my responsibilities, I had to audit the equipment of a company that we were lending money to, and it was a coal mining company. Basically, I needed to go into the coal mine and make sure that the drills, the mining equipment, was, was really there. So, I put on the coveralls, and it, was a, it wasn't a a shaft mine. It was a, a um, I forget what you call them, tunnel mine now, down in West Virginia. And I laid on my back on a little teeny wooden cart that ran on small little wheels on narrow gauge railroad track with the ceiling about eight to ten inches above my head. And we went for over a mile straight into the side of the mountain. And we got in to the, to the head of the rail, and you got off into this room in which the ceiling was anywhere from, well, it was less than three feet tall, with light bulbs hanging from cords. And the guy that I was with said, have you ever experienced total darkness? And I said, no, I don't think I ever have. And he said, watch. 
and they turned out the lights. It was a darkness you could feel. Outer darkness. Entire separation. A place of torment, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said, this is what awaits those who do not express faith like this centurion. Do you believe Jesus is the king? Do you believe his word is authoritative? Your eternal destiny lies in the balance of the answer to that question. May God grant you grace to choose wisely. Let's pray. Father, we read these accounts of the miraculous power of Jesus and we are stunned, breathless. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, as Paul writes. He is clearly Messiah. Though Lord, we pray this morning that the reality of who Jesus is would break through today into the hearts and minds of those who are sitting here who are still on the fence. They have yet to come to a conclusion. They are like the multitudes following along, picking up the scraps and the pieces and enjoying the ride. Father, I pray that you would move mightily in their heart even now, that you would bring them unto conviction, that they would recognize that there is no hope outside of Christ, and that they would flee to Him. Oh Lord, for those who have fled to Christ for refuge, may you strengthen our faith. Day by day it is chipped away at living in this broken world. We can lose sight of the Savior and with it lose hope. The Lord, strengthen us in the inner man. Use the, the power of the passage we have been looking at this morning to strengthen our grip on Christ. We ask it for His name's sake. Amen. Again, as I did last week, I say again to you, if you do not know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, you need to know Him. You come and let me talk to you. Let me show you from the Word of God how you can know Christ. God bless you.